Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is Ms. Tree Theater, an I'm the Gun feature dedicated to recapping the adventures of writer Max Allen Collins and artist Terry Beatty's iconic hard-boiled private eye, Ms. Michael Tree. Last year, I recorded an initial episode of Ms. Tree Theater with very special guest Professor Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasts. We'd wanted to do something with Ms. Tree, and so we found some common ground in our collection. This just happened to be Ms. Tree's final comics appearances. And in a two-episode crossover, I joined Alan on an episode of The Quarterbin, and we crossed back over here. And between the two shows, we discussed the DC Comics published Ms. Tree specials, numbers 9 and 10. So I'm going to consider that previous episode of Ms. Tree Theater episode 0, and this one to be episode 1, where I'll be taking the more traditional approach of, in a first episode, covering a comics character's first appearances. And Ms. Tree's first appearances happen to be in Eclipse Magazine, numbers 1 through 6, cover dated May 1981 through July 1982. Eclipse Magazine was one of the earliest Eclipse publications, and I think it may have been the first serialized Eclipse book. Uh, As to this point, the publisher had been known primarily as an early pioneer of the original graphic novel and, uh, and the trade collection. But with the bi-monthly magazine, Eclipse was throwing its hat into the the ring occupied by other publications like Heavy Metal and Marvel's Epic Illustrated, though. In its short eight-issue run, I think Eclipse might have had the edge on those other two with just the variety of material in each issue. It was more to be found in its pages than the TNA sci-fi found in Heavy Metal and the fantasy-type stuff found in Epic. In Eclipse, sure, there were fantasy stories, and that's what you'd find advertised on the first few covers. Warrior women painted by the likes of Paul Gulacy, Michael Golden, John Pound. This would have looked right at home on the newsstand next to Heavy Metal. But there was also work like Trina Robbins' period drug piece Dope. Veterans Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers did some work. Ragamuffins, a growing-up story by Don McGregor with gorgeous, uninked pencils by Gene Colan. There was some humor stuff, and, of course, noir mystery heroine Ms. Tree. Probably the probably the most successful feature to come out of the Eclipse magazine experiment. Now, Ms. Tree wasn't the first collaboration between Collins and Beatty, who owned the character. This was kind of the Eclipse way. Creator rights was a a top priority at the company. Um, they'd worked together on the Mike Mist Minute Mysteries, a, a syndicated feature starring Mike Mist, a private eye who they'd occasionally bring into the Mystery universe. And of course, Mystery wasn't their last collaboration. And I'd say over the f- last year or so, there's been this wild phenomenon, another creation of theirs, DC's Wild Dog. Anytime you'd read anything about the hockey-masked vigilante in the past. It it was always with the amendment Wild Dog by the creators of Ms. Tree. But now that Wild Dog has blown up this past year, appearing regularly in Young Animals' Cave Carson as a cybernetic eye, and this still blows my mind, every week on CW's Arrow, guys even got podcasts devoted to him. I think from now on it's going to be the other way around, whenever... Anyone mentions Ms. Tree, 
That mention will have to be amended with by the creators of Wild Dog. Now, Mystery has had an interesting publishing history. From Eclipse Magazine, she'd graduate to her own ongoing series, a healthy 50-issue run published initially by Eclipse, but then by Aardvark Vanaheim, then by Renegade, and she finished up her comics career with 10 quarterly specials published by DC. But it all started right here in Eclipse Magazine. Max Collins and Terry Beatty's second most famous creation debuted in a six-part story arc titled Eye for an Eye. In this episode, I'll be recapping the first three chapters of that serial. Chapter 1, The Girl in the Red Wedding Dress, begins with an introductory splash page. A woman stands outside a motel in the driving rain, dressed or undressed in a transparent nighty, high-heeled slippers, head downcast, she thinks to herself, Today was our wedding day. Tonight, our honeymoon. Tomorrow? The story proper opens the morning of this woman's wedding with first-person narration. This woman, Ms. Friday, reports to work at the office of Tree Investigations, run by private eye Mike Tree. The boss kids his girl Friday for being late, and further teases her, it's, it's he who's to be today's groom, whether Friday will trade her Ms. for Mrs. Friday is adamant, however, that after today she'll be known strictly as Ms. Tree. Soon-to-be Ms. Tree narrates the couple's origin story. They didn't exactly meet under the best of circumstances. Meter Maid Friday was about to ticket Mike Tree's car. But from there, they found they shared some common ground. She was currently on the police force, and Mike Tree was a former cop. And to both surprise, they were they shared the name Michael. A blossoming romance followed, and Mike convinced Michael to quit ticketing cars and to work for his agency, though Michael insisted she wasn't interested in being a secretary. Sure enough, Michael earned her PI license and acquired a firearm, though in the small operation of the agency, she ended up doing more than her fair share of secretarial-type work. Though she says that someone had to organize the agency into a business. Well, business started to boom after a successful high-profile case brought some national media attention, hired by a civic group and clearing a wrongly convicted teenager accused of murdering his mother. Got the agency uh, featured in magazines, television, and Mike Tree even published a successful memoir. The agency was able to hire more staff, but Michael seemed satisfied with her role behind the scenes. She never took field assignments and pretty much just handled the business end of things. After a couple years, Michael seemed concerned that her relationship with Mike, they were just spinning wheels. When she confronts Mike, he says that he'd been afraid that all of Michael's quote-unquote feminist bullshit would get in the way of marriage, and I guess insisting on being called Ms. is enough in Mike's eyes to qualify as feminist bullshit. Uh, But the air apparently cleared. They do set a wedding date. After a very small chapel service, Mike and Mike attempt to enjoy a one-night honeymoon in a nearby motel, but when Mike goes out to grab a couple of sodas, and here Michael prophetically tells Mike he'll catch his death in the rain. 
Michael hears two loud gunshots and rushes out to see her new husband shot dead. Hey, who likes wild dog? Who let the dog sound? No, 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 no. I'm taking this podcast seriously. There's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the ads. I'm doing this right. I'm FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold Podcast at SNGPod.com. I'm here to tell you about a special podcast I've been working on. Wild Pod, a wild dog podcast, is a series covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their answer to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering all appearances of the character in all forms of media. What began as a little mini-series about one of my favorite non-mort DC characters has become a regular ongoing podcast that I love and have no plans to end anytime soon. You can listen at SNGPod.com or on iTunes, Shout Engine, or Stitcher. Born to be One Grave for My Tears, from Eclipse Magazine number 2, opens with an introductory splash page very similar to that of the first chapter, exact same layout. Ms. Tree, head downcast, now not outside a motel, but in a cemetery holding some flowers. And in what will become her standard work outfit, a long, dark dress cinched tightly at the waist, and this interesting, I don't know, looks like a leather bib or something, but I guess it's like a big collar, very distinctive part of the dress. And she thinks, a few days ago, I held a similar bouquet, a bridal one. I miss you, Mike. After giving a statement to the suburban police who are investigating Mike's murder, Ms. Tree calls on Chick Steele, current city detective and Mike's friend and former partner. Chick vows to find Mike's killer, but Ms. Tree makes him promise to do it as a cop, not to do it out of revenge. Though the look in her eyes and the first-person narration box tells us that uh, she may have the whole revenge thing covered herself. After a small, private gravesite service for Mike, Ms. Tree dives right into her work. As soon as she has her things moved into Mike's office... As it's pointed out, she doesn't even need to change the lettering on the door. She's approached by Roger Fremont and Dan Green, investigators for the agency. Roger says that prior to being murdered, Mike brought up the possibility of partnership for Roger and Dan, with Michael Tree expected to be away, I guess, for homemaking and on perpetual maternity leave. But of course, Mike's murder has changed all that, and Roger makes it plain that he doesn't like Ms. Tree's assertion as de facto boss. Well, she makes things equally plain by firing his ass, though. He has a few choice words for her on the way out as he slams the door to her office. Michael then receives a call, someone claiming to have some information on her husband's murder. She agrees to meet the, the caller at the zoo. A mystery man, a Mr. Edwards, claims that at the time of his death, Mike was working for him. Edwards is an assistant DA. He'd hired Mike privately to look into... Bang! 
Just before Edwards had a chance to say anything more, he's shot right outside the tiger cage by a mysterious assailant. Ms. Tree instinctively whips out her pistol and shoots the assailant dead. This is her very first kill, but she seems pretty unfazed by it. Now, I'm not sure I want to start something as... tacky and tempting as a kill count. Uh, but just take my word for it, throughout the series, that kill count would get uh, pretty high. Chick Steele shows up on the scene and is able to confirm that Edwards was indeed an assistant DA, but has, but has no idea what Mike Tree may have been working on for him. Nor does he know the identity of the now-dead gunman, suggesting that he was likely a hired assassin, and at least the possibility that this is Mike Tree's murderer. But Ms. Tree's mystery deepens, as now she's not only to find out who hired this killer, but also who's the mysterious blonde who she sees leaving flowers at her dead husband's gravestone. Death is a little black book, and Eclipse number three opens with Ms. Tree contemplating that very question. And if Mike Tree had a little something on the side, what else could he have been keeping from her? Well, the next step in her investigation into Mike's murder is to speak with Mrs. Edwards, the wife of the assistant DA who'd secretly hired Mike to look into a private matter, so private that the rest of the tree agency had no knowledge of it. Mrs. Edwards has little to report, though, just that Edwards seemed a little unhappy at work. So that's Michael's next step, visit with Edwards' associates at the DA's office. There, she meets a fellow assistant DA, a Ms. Worth, Mary Worth, which it's acknowledged in Ms. Tree's narration as a name shared with the character, quote-unquote, in the comics. Which brings to mind the significance that Collins places on names in Ms. Tree. I definitely think there is a significance, but I'm not sure about their value. The way characters are able to share names so easily. Mike Tree is murdered, and his wife, Michael Tree, slides right into his role, right into his place in the business. Remember, they didn't even have to change the lettering on the door. If anything, I think the most significance is placed on the homophonic nature of Michael's preferred address. It's more than just a funny joke. It's also shared. It's a comment or a statement on the promise of Michael's adventures. Ms. Tree is a mystery. And this assistant DA sharing the name Mary Worth with a long-running comic strip featuring a woman well-known for her good advice... This use of a shared name is a little ironic, as Assistant D.A. Worth really has nothing to offer Ms. Tree. She claims to have no knowledge about Edward's side investigation, though Michael's not convinced at all. Back at the office, Dan Green tells her he's swamped. The cases have been piling up while Ms. Tree's been on her crusade to catch her husband's killer. She agrees to subcontract some work to missed investigations, which is a nice way to acknowledge Max Collins and Terry Beatty's other private eye creation. Effie, the tree agency's secretary, tells Michael that the police have some personal effects of Mike, which she'll need to collect. But first, Ms. Tree stops by Mike's apartment. She's been putting off cleaning it out. When she arrives, she sees the place has been ransacked, and whoever has done it is still in the apartment. Michael hears a sound in the bedroom. When she enters, she's greeted by a gunshot, a near miss that hits the door jam. Michael returns fire, but whoever it was crashes through the window and gets away. 
All Michael had made out was a stocky form she assumes to be male. Chick Steele, Mike's old partner, arrives at the scene with some other police. And Ms. Tree leaves to collect Mike's effects from police headquarters. There, she signs for the things, and among them is something Michael seems to think will be quite useful. A little black book full of addresses and phone numbers. Will this potential treasure trove of clues prove useful? Well, we'll find out next time in the conclusion of Eye for an Eye. So, all in all, very promising beginning from Ms. Tree. Collins obviously knows his way around a mystery story. He'd already at this point had a couple of novels under his belt, and he'd been writing the Dick Tracy newspaper strip for some time. And here he's laid out uh, the makings of a, a very fine mystery tale. The pieces are in place, the players have been identified, and yet there are still some twists and turns to come before this first arc's conclusion. And I really enjoy this early Terry Beatty art. Having read a good chunk of Ms. Tree, the series spans a good decade, and I read a lot of it for the first time in a very short period of time. It's unusual to get the opportunity in modern comics to see an artist's work develop over a 10-12 year period on one character. Terry Beatty's style didn't change dramatically like some artists have. Keith Giffen is a good example of that, I'd say, but along the way there were refinements, especially in Ms. Tree's appearance. And I can talk more about that in future Ms. Tree theater episodes, but here I'd just want to say what a well-designed, a thoughtfully designed character Michael Tree is. Such a unique look, and iconic. Her dark frock, gloves, and gun like a uniform, soldier-like. Her look is almost a declaration of war unto itself. And of course that killer hairstyle, very unusual in its earliest incarnation, kind of schizophrenic with its severe bangs, but they kind of curl to the right on both ends, and then a volcanic puff of frizz in the back. There's definitely a party in the back. It's like Louise Brooks in the front, Chaka Khan in the back. And for some reason, this style brings to mind, for any Robotech fans out there, another tale of two hairdos. And on a show full of pretty wild hairstyles, this one is actually pretty bad. Actually, the worst. Uh, it happens to belong to Lisa Hayes as she appeared in the Robotech The Sentinels pilot. This was the unproduced follow-up to the mid-80s Harmony Gold series. For some reason, the character designers gave her this weird do, which kind of split her head down the middle. On one side, her hair appeared as it had in the classic Macross series, hanging down and finishing in a heavy swirl like an oblong cinnamon bun on her shoulder. But on the other side, her hair ended in a dramatic sweep up off the shoulder. Now, either hairstyle would have been fine, but the combination, it's a disaster. Anyway, in addition to her character design, the world Ms. Tree inhabits here is it's depicted in perfect harmony with the script. Everything is straightforward, no dynamic panel layouts, just the right amount of background detail. Now, these elements could actually be hindrances or boring in other kinds of comics, but here the story's twists and turns, hallmarks of good mystery stories. Beatty's style is perfectly complementary to that kind of script. I'll be putting up some of these images on the show's blog, I'mthegun.blogspot.com. You can maybe see what I mean. 
There also you will find some of my contact info should you want to talk more Ms. Tree or Robotech hairstyles. I would be totally down with a hairstyles of Robotech podcast. I think I'd like to take the opportunity to thank the folks who helped promote my Phantom Lady episode of ITG's ABCs. That's another feature where I look into anthology and backup comic stories. Some people helped promote that episode on Twitter, my social media platform of choice. Heard from Joe Crawford of the Tumblr for the Non-Discerning Reader. Joe, in a shocking coincidence, found one of the Phantom Lady Action Comics weekly issues when bargain shopping just as I was pushing out the episode. And he tweeted, uh, The only thing better than a new episode of I'm the Gun is finding out I coincidentally picked up an issue it covers. Thank you, Joe. Phantom Lady got likes and retweets from Chris Sheehan of the excellent blog Chris is on Infinite Earths, Comics in the Golden Age, Daniel Blake, David Brasher, the awesome blog DC in the 80s, Eli Loomis, Esteban Calvi, Franklin Boyd, at Big Frank B4, Greg Arujo, Jail Chose Me, at Fake Mike Jones, Jeffrey Brown, Jerry McMullen, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Make Mine Amalgam, Matches Balone, Mr. Cervero, Reggie Reggie, Ryan LaMarca, Steve Sellers, Stephen Bird, Willie Yarbrough, Xenozoic Xenophiles, a podcast devoted to the work of Mark Schultz, produced, of course, by great friends of the show, Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Also got a nice comment on the blog from Dr. Ange of the Legion of Superbloggers and Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, who wrote, I did not get Action Comics Weekly when it came out. As you say, it was a high monthly price point for the time, and since not all the characters grabbed me, I stayed away. But one of the characters which almost got me to buy was Phantom Lady. I had run into her first in a couple of random Freedom Fighters books from the 70s. I was floored by her beauty in Crisis and Who's Who, Perez and Stevens, for the win. No joke. Suffice it to say, I am glad you're covering her here. The story seems a little randy and definitely fun. I would have I would have read this as a monthly or maybe a true miniseries. I could see why maybe DC thought it might be tough to keep this as a monthly. How often can you go to the double entendre? And I think the art perfectly suits the story and the humor. Maybe I need to look in the cheap bins? And to that I say, yeah. Uh, As I said in the episode, those Action Comics Weekly features were hit and miss. Uh, Phantom Lady was definitely one of the better ones. And thank you for bringing up the uh, way the art perfectly suited the story, Ange, because I don't think I mentioned that enough in the episode. Chuck Austin, Gary Martin, had a slightly cartoony style, which I think was well-suited for the story, uh, despite the fact that it had a couple of dark moments. Um, And that art style and the humor, I think, would have really placed a Phantom Lady miniseries into the uh, DC landscape of the time, or at least not too long after that Phantom Lady mini was serial was published. And I think of things like the Phil Folio, Angel and the Ape miniseries, and the Kongorilla miniseries, and there was a, I think, a Stanley and his monster mini around the same time. I definitely could see Phantom Lady as done by Len Strzewski and Chuck Austin, fitting right into that lineup. Thank you, Ange, so much for writing in. And a big, big thank you to everyone for helping promote my little show. 
And a big, huge, gigantic thank you for uh, listening to my little show. All right, I think that will do it for now. So until next time, take care.